Are you looking for some practical tools for cultivating health in your local church? Check out the Nine Marks eJournal, our bi-monthly publication which features articles and book reviews on crucial topics. To subscribe to the Nine Marks eJournal, visit www.ninemarks.org forward slash eJournal. Hi, I'm Ryan Townsend, Executive Director of Nine Marks. Our vision is simple, churches that reflect the character of God. In light of that, Nine Marks exists to equip church leaders with a biblical vision and practical resources for displaying God's glory to the nations through healthy churches. To that end, we pray that this Nine Marks audio message will benefit both you and your local church. Listen, learn, and join the conversation. But it's it's a pleasure to be here with you guys uh, to talk about uh, elders in the local church. Um, Greg and Eric and I are uh, speaking each one of these sessions, and we're sort of operating under the assumption that most of the guys here in this room, uh, if you're here, that at this point you're probably uh, a person who believes that churches should have elders and believes that there should be elders in some kind of biblical way. We're, we're assuming that if, if you're the kind of person who had come to a Desiring God conference in February in Minneapolis, and that if you would take a track called elders, that, that you would be uh, so, sort of pro-elder. Uh, we're, we're assuming there aren't a lot of elder skeptics or elder doubters in the room. Maybe there are. And, and I hope that just by, by listening to these sessions, by the end of it, if, if you do have doubts and questions, you'll be like, wow, there's a lot more about elders in the Bible than I had really thought there, were, there was. So, so I hope that there will be kind of a, um, uh, an osmotic apologetic that's happening here. But, but we're assuming that most of us here uh, believe that and, and we want elders. The thing we're wrestling with is how do I get this going in my church and if it is going, how can I make a good thing better? How can we move you know, a notch closer toward biblical eldership uh, in our church? And, and what does that look like? Uh, so, so as we design these talks, um, kind of what we did is we, we asked Nine Marks, and some of you may be familiar with Nine Marks. It's a, it's a ministry that strives to promote health in local churches by pointing us back to the Bible for how to do church. And uh, not that all churches have to look exactly the same, but... You know, the Bible has a lot to say about the, the church and its philosophy of ministry, a lot more than we typically give it credit for. And so, so what Nine Mark, you know, Nine Marks gets calls. Hey, what do we do with elders? And lots of elder questions. So we basically just said, what are the big questions that people are asking about elders, that, that people from around the country are wrestling with? And we've, we've tailored these talks around that. So, uh, my topic is how, how do we go about actually raising up new elders. I, I want to answer that question the children around the world ask, mommy and daddy, where do elders come from? Um, how, how, do we, how do we get elders in our church? How do we, how do we add elders uh, to the mix? Um, maybe you're here and, uh, and you're a pastor uh, in a, a local church and you're like, I would love to have elders. I see it. I want it. And so you hold up your Bible and you're like, okay, that's what they are. And then you look out in your church and you're like, oh, but I don't see them. 
You know, you're like going through your, your guys in your church. Like, no, 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 no. Hmm, yeah. So, so what do you, where do you get elders? How, how do you raise them up? Or maybe you're a pastor or an elder in your church, and you've got a few elders, and, and they're functioning, but the work is growing. And you realize, we need some more hands on deck here. More sheep, more shepherds. Or, or maybe the, the, those of you who have been elders or pastors in your church, you've done it for a while, and you're just weary. And you're like, we need new help. We, we need new blood. We, we have a limited perspective here. We need... Uh, new gifts into this group. And so, again, you're looking out over your church and you're saying, but I'm not exactly sure if there's anyone who's ready to step into that role. So how do we get new elders? Or maybe you're in a church that has a really good bench and you have a lot of guys uh, who are serving as elders and, and there's a good rotation going on. But even then, you're a forward thinker, hopefully, and you're looking down the road a little bit and you're saying, but we need to always have a culture of training up elders. We need to find ways to raise up new ones. And, oh, wouldn't we love to plant a church by God's grace? And if we're going to do that, we're going to have to send some guys out, which means our bench is going to shrink. And so we need to start planning now. How do we bring guys in? And so we want to think about how, how you get new elders into a church. Uh, when you're looking out at guys, and they're not qualified uh, currently, based upon what we see in the scriptures. So there's two approaches to getting new elders. Um, uh, the passive approach and the active approach. Uh, the passive approach is like, well, I hope some guys move to my town and from another town who are elders and maybe they'll join my church and I could put them right to work. Um, and, and so we pray and we wait on the Lord. And that's good. We should pray. We should ask God to raise up elders in the church and we need to keep doing that. But, but I want to suggest, and sort of what this talks about is, is that there's also an active component where we need to be learning how to intentionally train up the elders. Uh, and so, uh, you know, developing a farm league, that's the name of this talk. And so you, you have to, I have to apologize. These talks have a relentlessly sports metaphor sort of running throughout them. Uh, so, so how, you know, the farm league, how, how do you raise new guys up? so that new elders are coming into the pipeline in a local church? It's just a question a lot of guys wrestle with, a question I've heard many times. So I want to think about that with you, and I'd like to suggest, uh, I want to talk about sort of three aspects of raising up new elders in the local church, sort of three dimensions that, uh, that go into this process. And the first one is this. Uh, again, I apologize for the sports metaphors. Scouting the talent. You need to scout the talent. You have to find a way to identify people out there, men in the congregation, who you might train up. Like, who is it you should train? Right? Great, let's train elders. Okay, who? Everybody? Some? Which ones? How do you figure that out? Uh, perhaps, you know, you, you should sort guys by age. Okay, let's line them up. Who's the oldest in the church? All right, he's number one draft pick. Who's second oldest? Because elder doesn't mean older, right? So should it maybe be the older and then down to the younger? Or maybe we should sort uh, draft picks in our church by uh, what they do for a profession. You know, who are the guys who are really successful in the world? Who are the guys who, who lead big companies or, or successful managers? Maybe those are the guys. And so, so you line guys up by some metric of worldly success and influence and importance, and, and maybe those are the guys you should target first. Uh, or may, maybe we sort guys by tenure. We say, well, who's been in the church longest? 
that one's put their time in. He deserves first shot. Dibs, longest tenure, and then on down the line. Well, there's some things to be said for each of those considerations. I'm not saying they're 100% bad. I think there's little factors. But but I think there's something else to be looking for. And so I'd like us to turn uh, in our Bibles to a very familiar passage, a kind of home base, if you will, of elder conversation. First Timothy chapter 3. Probably familiar with this text. It's a text in which Paul, the Apostle Paul lays out qualifications for elders. It's a very similar passage in Titus chapter 1. Very, a lot of overlap and echo between the two with some nuances. We'll look a little bit at Titus in, in a bit here. But if you look at what elders uh, are called to be in this passage, let me just read it. First uh, Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 to 7. This saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to be an overseer, he desires a noble task. An overseer, therefore, must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, self-controlled, sensible, respectable, hospitable, an able teacher, not addicted to wine, not a bully, but gentle, not quarrelsome, but not greedy, one who manages his own household competently, having his children under control with all dignity. If anyone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of God's church? He must not be a new convert, or he might become conceited and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Furthermore, he must have a good reputation among outsiders, so that he does not fall into disgrace in the devil's trap. So a high calling, a high uh, qualification bar there. and We'll talk about the different aspects of it in a moment. So, so, so who, do you, who do you lean into in your congregation? If Again, you're holding up these verses and you're looking out and you're like, I don't see anyone who's really fully qualifying in, in even some basic ways in, in all the things we see in that text. So, so what do we look for? And, and I'd like to suggest that there's some help there in that very first verse where it says, at least in this translation, if anyone aspires to be an overseer, he desires a noble task. Isn't it interesting that it's sort of commendable to aspire to be an elder or overseer, that that's a good thing. It's to, to say, you know, I'd, I'd like to be that. I'd, I'd want to be a shepherd of the flock, maybe a, a pastor in a vocational sense or an elder in, in a non-vocational lay sense. Um, and, and someone who desires that, that's a good thing. And I would say that's something to be looking for. Um, not that you're probably going to look out at your church and say, okay, I don't see anyone qualified, but who out there aspires to be an elder? You know, you're probably not going to have three guys like, yes! Right? You'd be like, what? I'm, me, an elder? I mean, most, most guys would be like, not me. I'm not qualified to do that. That's, that's for other people who have been to seminary or, you know, whatever they think. But, but maybe look for different levels of aspiration. Just look for, for guys in the church who have some spiritual hunger, who, who show a spark, who have some interest. You know, especially if you're looking at your church and you don't see anyone, you've you got to look for some light somewhere, something to work with. Um, you know, this is what it might look like. It may not look like a guy who's coming up to you after a service saying, Pastor, I, I aspire to be an elder. But it might look like this. It might look like a guy who, he's always coming to you after the service and peppering you with questions about the text. Hey, what does that mean? And no, no, wait a minute. What about this verse? And then you get an email, you know, during the week. And I was wrestling with this question. And could you give me some advice on on what this passage means, or how these two doctrines fit together? 
there's a guy in my uh, church right now. He's a young guy, and uh, he's he hits me up with questions more than the average Christian. It's interesting, and so uh, he's kind of on my radar. In the next couple of months, when once a few things shift around in my schedule, I want to start meeting with him and it's just start working with him and talking to him because I see that interest in him about what the Bible has to say and how it's rightly interpreted. And I don't know if he's going to be qualified to be an elder or not, but that's that's the talent scouting. You've got to start somewhere. Um, or maybe it looks like this. Maybe it's a guy who uh, comes to you with a question and you say, well, you know, here's a book, read it. And then, lo and behold, he comes back a week later and he read it. Well, oh yeah, it's a good book. I thought about this and this and this. And But what about that? And you know, well, here, here's another book. And two weeks later he comes back and he actually read the book. It's a miracle. You know, that's a guy to be looking at. That's someone to keep your eye on. That's someone to potentially train. Um, or maybe it's it's a guy who is witnessing at work. And he, he's just sharing the gospel with people. Uh, and it's happening. And he's telling you about, oh, pray for my friend at work. I got to talk to Christ about him. And I'm really praying for that guy. Uh, there was a, a fellow in our church, a young guy, who um, had come because his girlfriend was kind of dragging him. He had grown up in a... Uh, a church and then fell away from it and was an atheist for a while and then he started coming because his girlfriend was coming and then you know I, I could tell you know he had walked by and he didn't want to shake my hand ever and you know, he's always slipping out of church at the end of the service and then and then once you know Sundays he started being friendlier and started opening up and was like looking at me shaking my hand and I was like what's what's who is this guy anyway and so I, I took him out to coffee and found out about four months earlier he had come to faith in Christ and uh, just the, the preaching of the word and the witness of his friends, God worked in his heart. There was a crisis. He came to faith. And, uh, and I said, so what are you doing now? And he worked at Whole Foods, and he was just telling me about all the people he regularly is witnessing to at Whole Foods. And, uh, you know, the, this lady here, and she's, uh, you know, she, she's a lesbian, and yet she's let me talk to, about faith with her. And she knows what the Bible says, but she, she hasn't shunned me yet. And so I've been able to share the gospel with her, and I'm reading the gospel of John with another guy. And he's, like, rattling off all these people he's evangelizing. And so I, I stopped them. We were sitting in Starbucks, and I stopped them. I said, no, wait a minute. I said, you realize this isn't, like, usual for Christians to do this? And he goes, it isn't? He goes, I thought that's what we were supposed to do. And I'm like, yeah, I keep doing it. I'm just saying, this is great. It's not the normal thing where people are telling about all the people they're sharing the gospel with. But someone's doing that. Talent scout. Keep your eye open. It's someone who's spiritually active. Or maybe there's someone who sees needs in the church and, and shows leadership in meeting those needs. That could be a future elder. Or, or maybe you notice a, a young man who is you know, younger in his faith, but boy, he's doing a great job leading his family. Doing a great job shepherding that family. Or maybe uh, it's a guy who, who comes up to you sometimes and gives little reports on other people in the church. He's like, have you seen Fred around? I haven't seen Fred. I'm really worried about him. I'm just talking to him. I know there's some, you know, you know the stuff going on in his marriage. Like, I don't know there's stuff going on in his marriage. How did you know that? And, uh, oh, yeah, yeah. And, he, and we've been, I've been praying for him. And well, he hasn't been in church for like three weeks. And I'm really concerned. And, and when you find those people like that who have like shepherdy radar, and they're, they're tracking other people in the church, and they're concerned about fellow members, that's something to look for. And so, so be looking for those kinds of guys. E- even if you, you hold up your Bible against them and you say, mm, that guy's not quite ready to be an elder, there's this issue or that issue, but that's someone that you might want to train. Because it's so much easier to train someone who's in motion. It, it's so much easier if there's some pull on their end, rather than it all has to be push on your end. 
You're like, come on, get excited about the Lord. It just doesn't work. But when there's some movement, you can, you can guide it. When there's wind in the sail, you can, you can grab the tiller and steer that person in a direction. Um, and it would just encourage us to be open to the different ways God would, would lead in that. Uh, I, I, I realize I'm, I'm here with my brethren. I'm among my tribe. This is my tribe. You know, desiring God guys. Guys who like exegesis. Guys who like theology. Guys who are into the Bible. And, uh, and I know if your heart's like mine, there can always be a temptation, a temptation to, to be so concerned about biblical fidelity, which we should be, that, that we don't have the eyes of faith to see the potential in somebody because they don't match up now. And, and we could be, you know, there's no grace, there, there's no hope, there's no faith. But think about when you became a Christian. Think about when you were converted. Think about three months after your conversion. Would a pastor or an elder have said to you, wow, you're definitely future pastor elder material? <laughs> Probably not in my case, you know, but you never know. God is at work. And so we have to look for evidences of grace, little, little glimpses, little lights, aspiration, growing aspiration, and you fan the flame. Not that everyone who desires to be an elder should be one, but that, but that there, is, there has to be something there. Can you think of somebody like that in your church? Maybe take 30 seconds. You got a pen and a paper? Any names coming to mind? Any faces? Jot their name down. Take a second to do that. I got a couple names I'm thinking of. Let's jot their names down. All right, so you got a few names. All right, you're going to train them. So now what? What are you going to do to train these guys? Uh, What's the goal? What does training look like? You know, in sports, you, you, you train people, and typically you train them in the fundamentals. So basketball, I train someone in basketball, they got to know how to dribble, they got to know how to shoot, they got to know how to play defense, how to pass. There's certain fundamental things. Like Vince Lombardi, when he would uh, you know, train guys every season, he would hold up the football and he would say, this is a football. <laughs> to all these guys. You got to start with the fundamentals, the basics. If you've ever fought or done martial arts, you know fundamentals. Where does it start? In your feet. It's your footwork. And then it builds from the ground up. If you don't have your footwork right, you're going to be messed up when you're in combat. And so there's fundamentals to eldering um, that we need to, to be training guys toward. And I'd like to suggest three fundamentals that we should be training guys toward. Uh, that I think they're reflected here. We'll get back to 1 Timothy 3 now. They're reflected here in this passage. Uh, this is nothing new, this, this rubric I'm going to give you. like It's been used a bajillion times. Uh, it's used in Trellis and the Vine, if you've ever read that book. Really helpful there, but you know, it was around before that. Because it's the fundamentals. You know, the fundamentals are the fundamentals. This isn't rocket science. It's, it's just basic. Um, but here's three, and you think about them as the three C's. You've probably heard them before. Character. We need to be training guys toward godly character. Look at 1 Timothy 3. Look at all the character stuff. Above reproach is kind of the the umbrella statement in 1 Timothy 3. That's kind of a blanket statement about the overall nature of the person's character. Um, Self-controlled, verse 2. Husband of one wife, which I take to mean fidelity. Sensible, respectable, 
hospitable, not addicted to wine, self-controlled, not a bully, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not greedy. Having the character of Christ. And, and it's critical that as we train up elders in the local church that we're training for character. And sometimes we forget about character. And yet, that's one of the most important things here of all. That's the, the big emphasis. I always find that surprising when I read the, the uh, elder qualifications in Paul to see how much time is spent on character. And we often think we go straight to the skills, which are important. We'll get to that. But character is so critical. It, and it's, it, there's a reason why. It's because uh, one of an elder's primary jobs in the church is to be an example. It's one of our primary tasks. is to be able to point a newer Christian to an elder and say, you want to know what this looks like in kind of the grown-up Christian version? That's a good example right there. You should be like that guy. You know, not 100%. He's not perfect, but that's a mature Christian. Oh, you know, the whole more is caught than taught and all that stuff. Well, you got to be able to look at people and, and, and see them. I think of elders in my church, godly elders, and, you know, they're, they're helpful to me. I can think about their patience and I think about their kindness and their humility. And so those aren't just words for me. They're, they're people that I can see and I can think about interactions that I've had with them. And so character is so critical for elders because of that, that modeling. It's like what Paul said to Timothy in uh, chapter 4 of the same letter, that familiar passage, let no one despise your youth. Instead, you should be an example to the believers in speech and conduct and love and faith and purity. Um, this is critical, character. So, so we develop character, and, and that's one of the training goals of training up elders. Uh, how do you develop character? Um, yeah, how do you develop character? <laughs> yeah, can I make someone have a godly character? Wow, if I could figure that out, I, I could really have do better with my kids. You know, like how, you know, how do you make someone have godly character? How do you make someone mature? Well, you really can't. That's what the Holy Spirit does. It's the fruit of the Spirit. And yet there's also human effort involved. Paul says to Timothy, train yourself to be godly. Uh, unlike regeneration, there is effort involved in sanctification. We have to participate. There's a, a training effort component to that. So what I think our job is as men who are training elders or future elders is that we're like that training partner who, who's pointing out things like, oh, listen, on your squat you need to get your yourself a little lower and you need to you know stick your chest down more okay that's a better form you know on your tennis swing you know make sure you follow through like this you're not quite getting it like that and and so as we draw close to people we see things in their lives it's uh, it has to be in relationship because as you get to know one another that's when you see where the the character needs to grow uh, as you get to know their life life is an incredible buffet of sanctification opportunities Life is constant opportunities for sanctification. Marriage, a lifelong opportunity for sanctification. Parenting is a huge opportunity for sanctification. Singleness, a great opportunity for sanctification. Sickness, layoffs, jobs. And so as we, as we press into each other's lives and we share lives together and people go through those opportunities... We can point out things and we can encourage them and, and help them grow in those different ways. And, uh, and, and as we, we discover things they're wrestling with, different sins, we, we can help them work on those. 
sins and say, come on, let's, let's get up, let's get on with this. Let's fight that. Let's put that to death. I want to help you. I don't want to be an accountability partner. I want to be a, a you know, a put in a sin down partner. I want to help you kill this thing. And so we, we fight together and we encourage each other toward holiness. A second um, fundamental, a second C, there's character, and then there's convictions. We need to train elders to have biblical knowledge, theological knowledge, uh, to understand God's word. Elders must be apt to teach, which implies that they have to understand the Bible. Titus is even more clear. If you flip over to Titus, where Paul uh, gives that list there, very similar to First Timothy 3. Paul's rattling off the elder qualifications there. And he says in verse 9 of Titus 1, that this person must be holding to the faithful message as taught, so that he will be able both to encourage with sound teaching and to refute those who contradict it. He needs to be able to hold to that so he can encourage others. And So you've got to have someone who, who understands God's word and, and holds fast to God's word and who knows it. And you know that person who, uh, if, if they're sitting down for coffee with someone and, and that someone is asking questions, the elder can, he knows his way around his Bible and can point them to that and can help explain the gospel to that person. Or, or if the elder is in a small group study and someone starts spouting off some things that yeah, aren't quite right, that elder knows to, to step in and say, that's not quite right. It's actually this. And so there has to be some convictional knowledge. There has to be theology and an understanding of the gospel. And I don't think that that means that every elder needs to have a Ph.D. in biblical theology or something. Though that's awesome if you have one of those. Or can be awesome. But, but they've got to know, they gotta know the, the real thing from the fake thing. They've got to be able to sniff that out and, and have their convictions. And so that's something to train for is to train for biblical um, convictions and knowledge. Isn't it interesting what Paul says to Timothy um, in chapter 4, 1 Timothy 4, verse 16. Pay close attention to your life and teaching. Persevere in these things, for by doing this, you will save both yourself and your hearers. So, paying attention both to our character and our convictions our life and our teaching. And then just a final one, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this because in the third talk, uh, Greg Gilbert's going to really take these ideas and just expand them out and, and really lay into them. When we think about an elder's job, what they're supposed to do. Um, but, but that's the third C, or certain competencies an elder needs to have. As you train an elder, they need to have a certain character. You're training in that fundamental. Convictions. Doctrinal knowledge, biblical knowledge, your training in that fundamental. And then finally, competencies. They need to have certain skill sets. There's something that elders do. They don't just stand and be, but they also do. And there's a work to be done. There's a task at hand. And so what do elders do? And like I said, we'll hear more about this in the third talk. But just to give you a preview, uh, they teach. Right? Elders teach. It's one of the, the unique tasks and roles of an elder. That they must be those who teach the word. God's, God's leaders always have been teachers down through the, the centuries. Because God rules his people by his word. 
And so his leaders always have been word people. The prophets brought the word of God. The priests taught the law of God. The king had a copy of the scroll of the law of God. Jesus was the word of God, and he taught the word of God. And the the apostles taught the word of God. And when they planted churches, they handed it off to elders. And elders teach the word of God. So teaching is central to our task. And so that's a skill set to develop, is teaching. Uh, A second skill set to develop is shepherding. This is another competency. Do you know do you know how to engage in relationships with other people around the Word of God? And to to meet with people in different stages of life and to bring God's word to bear so that people mature in their faith. That's the goal of shepherding. You could put disciple making, I think, as a good substitute for shepherding as well. How do you grow people up to maturity in Christ? Do you know how to do that? Do you know how to do that one on one? Can you do that in a small group? Do you know how to to meet with people. It's simple, and yet it's the basic stuff of, of eldering. And then a third competency, competency is leadership. Is, can that person lead? Elders, as it says in 1 Timothy 5, must um, are those who direct the affairs of the church. They're good leaders in the church. They, they lead well. And so elders need to be guys who aren't passive, but who know how to say, there's something here that we needs to be done, there's a problem that needs to be fixed, there's a goal, and I'm, I'm standing up and saying, we're going, and people need to follow. And that's part of leadership, is that you point in a direction that needs to go, and people follow, and you motivate people, not passively, but actively. So we need to have opportunities for that. And so th- that's a key part of training. So you've got to find the right guys, right? You've got to find guys who have a spark, who have some kind of aspiration, show some kind of spiritual hunger, then you've got to train them in the fundamentals, like character and conviction and competencies. Um, and then there's ways to train them. How do you actually do it? What does training look like? Uh, so at this point, and, and we're going to be doing this in each of our talks, I'm going to have the other speakers come up here with Ryan Townsend, who's the executive director of Nine Marks, and we're just going to have like our own little informal panel here. And and I'm going to sort of put the question to them. What have you guys done in your churches to uh, among these panel speakers to to try training guys? You know, what what are some things that have worked? How has this actually looked on the ground in your various churches? So come on up here, guys. This is uh, uh, Eric Bancroft uh, here. And uh, the guy in the jacket is Ryan Townsend, executive director of Nine Marks. And this is Greg Gilbert. So, uh, Ryan, I'll yield the microphone to you. Brothers, welcome. Thank you all for coming out to this workshop on elders. Uh, a question here that um, I want to ask you all. Jeremy, I appreciate your point that uh, raising up leaders is not... Well, you can be passive, but if you want to raise up leaders who are biblically qualified and won't just kind of fit the world standards, it needs to be a deliberate, active approach. Um, so my question for you two first is, how do you deliberately, in your elders meetings, use your elders to think through practically... Uh, who you should raise up as elders. What does it look like? What kind of conversations do you all have, if any, in your elders meetings as you think together about raising up, uh, raising up leaders? What kind of things do you discuss practically? Help these guys walk them through what it looks like as you, for your elders, uh, together thinking through this question of raising up elders in your local church. Yeah, we, we actually spend, I, I'm the, my name's Greg Gilbert. I'm the senior pastor of Third Avenue Baptist Church in, uh, 
uh, Louisville, Kentucky. So thank you to all of you who are, who are here to talk through these things with us. I know it's a, it's a kind of limited amount of time. Um, but hopefully some of what we talk about here will be useful to you. And uh, during the breaks, uh, please feel free to come up and ask other questions if they're kind of more uh, particular to your situation. Um, in answer to your question, Ryan, what we do, we, uh, we just take our elders meetings into an executive session. At the end of, of every elders meeting, we meet uh, every other week on Wednesday nights from about 8 o'clock p.m. until 10.30 or 11 o'clock. Uh, we have interns that are kind of around us, some other staff members of the church. Uh, but once all the business is done that's, that's kind of public in that way, we just go into an executive session. And uh, one of the questions that we ask just about every time is, uh, does anybody want to bring anybody forward for consideration for being nominated to the congregation as an elder? And then the conversation is just really kind of free-flowing from there. You know, it's uh, it's all the stuff that you were talking about, Jeremy. It's it's uh, family life, it's ministry in the church, it's it's theology and conviction. Um, and over over time, it's usually months or, or, or weeks, that would be a really quick one, um, we come to a unanimity among each other that, yeah, hey, we want to we wanna move forward with this. Uh, the next step would be for us to give a, a pretty extensive questionnaire, about 15 pages worth of questions to a guy that we're thinking about nominating, have him fill that out, uh, send it back to us. The next step then would be to have that guy come into a meeting and be questioned by our elder board. And then the last step of that, if everything goes well, is that we nominate him to the church and God willing elect him. So, My name is Eric Bancroft. I'm a senior pastor of Castleview Baptist Church in Indianapolis. And the, the church when I came there in 2008... Uh, the elders did not know who the elders were until they came to a members meeting because the nominating committee picked them, recommended them to the congregation, congregation voted, and the elders just welcomed met each other for the first time at the elders meeting. So it was uh, not a very good, healthy process. And uh, over the last six and a half years, we have, by God's grace, changed that significantly so that it is the expectation, kind of in a Second Timothy 2.2 culture now, to uh, these things that they have heard and seen in, in us, to entrust these things to the faithful men that they might be able to teach others also. So the burden of that, the responsibility of that has been now upon the elders. There's no nominating committee anymore. That doesn't happen in that respect. It's the expectation of leaders to be discipling. The presupposition to leadership Identification, though, I think is discipleship in general. Whereas you don't look at a room of 10 guys and go, well, I wonder which one of you is the elder. Instead, you just look at 10 guys and go, anybody here want to grow in Christ? Anybody here want to be discipled? From that group of guys who begin to respond, they then begin to, some begin to kind of rise to the occasion faster, more maturely and more richly. Others just might be a longer process. As far as your specific question, then what we do as elders to kind of identify this, um, we look in a number of ways. One, in our member care, every elders meeting we're talking member care. Who are those who are, who are utilizing and are helping us with member care? as an identifiable marker. Another one is also in a, we have a, lot, a big small group ministry, fellowship groups we call them. Who are those leaders that are just multiplying and training up other leaders really well? They just have good shepherding instincts, sound in the word, and it's been really helpful to us in that respect. So do you guys, Jeremy, Eric, Ryan, do you guys have... Uh, like a designated, obvious pipeline, so to speak, for guys, or, or elder training program, anything like that, where people know these guys are being trained as elders? No. No. But we have, I, I would say we have fishing pools that we tend to fish from, um, like our growth groups. I, I noticed that some guys who are becoming uh, 
elders come from. That's our our small group Bible says we call them growth groups, uh, and uh, and we've and we've also started in the last couple of years doing some intentional training things of leaders. We, we we called one shepherding training and just trying to teach guys to do one to one Bible reading with people and how to do inductive Bible study and and then again watching for who bubbles out of that. So we kind of so I guess it's sort of a quasi. We have some things we're doing intentionally, but it's not like, hey, you want to be an elder, here's this class, this step, that kind of thing. But I don't know. If people do that, that would be interesting to learn about, if it's effective. Yeah, yes, we do. We have now a pretty involved system. I mean, you referenced the process. We we have it on a, on a big document. Happy to share that with you if it would be helpful as far as that. From anything from when an uh, initial aspiration to, to full uh, recommendation by the congregation, by recognition by the congregation. And there's application. There's questionnaires that they fill out. Um, and we do that partly because time does not afford us in a meeting to cover all that material. So we can serve our elders well by having a lot of that material captured on paper. They can read on their own and then desire to kind of drill in on particular areas of a man's life that they want to investigate more, either in a personal context that they might want to follow up on, or in the larger group context where the man is sitting with the rest of the elders and kind of in a Q&A context. And we do have a training stage. We take them through... Um, Biblical eldership, Alexander Strock's material has been helpful to us in that respect, uh, those things that we do with them. And then we have a teaching thing, responsibilities they have to do. Uh, we have to see their teaching gift in different contexts. So, yeah, it's a pretty formal process in that sense. So it's, a, it's, also, it's also a public process? Like the whole church knows that Joey is in the training process that should end up in him becoming an elder? Or is it more private than that? It's more private than that. And we've chosen to do that. Um, partly out of the fact that in light of our context, congregations are sort of learning the dynamic of that. You're coming from a constituency democratic mindset. Find an elder, there's your party, they'll, they'll, they'll kind of candidate, uh, they'll lobby for your constituency kind of thing. And so we're moving away from that. And so we're just saying we're responsible, training, discipling the men in that context. And then later on towards the end of the process, we make the congregation aware well before they're making any decisions, so that then they're aware. We do a Q&A in a members meeting with the congregation with that prospective candidate. But what we don't want to do is introduce them too soon, because what happens if you pull them offline? Now the guy feels like he's walking around the church with like a scarlet letter. It's just like, oh, you didn't make the cut, huh? Man, sorry for you. What happened? And it's just now you got like a stigma, like, yeah, I'm not good enough, whatever that means to be an elder. What about you and your situation? No, we we don't have any pipeline. We we just uh, we just use the life of the church. Uh, we use home groups, which sound sound very similar to what you've got. We have an internship that we uh, that we put guys through, but it's certainly not a kind of. Uh, there's no expectation that eldership comes out of that. Uh, uh, there are seminary students who go through our internship. Um, uh, I guess one guy who's been through that has has ended up being an elder, but there's there's no correlation there at all. I think structurally, the only thing I would want to add at CHBC that, that that's been really helpful for us elders as we've tried to raise up leaders is we have, like like Greg, we have an executive committee uh, executive meeting where it's just the elders because in our normal meetings we have interns and some some staff. But every elders meeting we will begin and end an executive session with that question of potential new elders, and we uh, we have uh, we have a closed list that only the elders only the elders see of men who we've been considering, and we will just consistently go over that list. And that little structure has been a fruitful uh, way of raising up elders. But often, elders that we end up presenting weren't on that list. So it's not like that list, you have to get on that list first. But we do have some structure that has been helpful. Last question, because we only have a couple more minutes. Um, How do you use your local congregation in raising up elders? So practically, how does the the congregation help you as you uh, 
uh, as you uh, raise up the elders, what's their involvement in the process? And these have to be brief. Yeah, ultimately they pick them. Uh, so at the end of the whole process, uh, it's not the elders who choose our elders, it's the congregation. Um, the elders nominate guys to the church, uh, but uh, uh, the very last thing that happens is that the church votes on the guy to, to make him an elder. Uh, the other thing that we ask for uh, very early on in the process is just at any point in the year, at any point in the process, uh, we actually s- solicit and encourage people to recommend to us guys that they see doing the work of elder in the congregation. Uh, so we have a constant stream of information coming to us from, from our people. I would echo that answer. Same thing on the front end. We welcome it. Happy to hear from people. Glad to have them commend men who are benefiting them with the teaching of the word, shepherding them, as well as at the very end, they're the ones who will uh, make that decision as far as the recognition of those gifts that God's given them and desire to be under their leadership as elders. Jeremy, last question for you. Is there a distinction in your congregation's mind between a pastor and an elder? Uh, Yes. Uh, even though we try to uh, batter down that distinction as much as possible. And some people get it more than others. But, you know, sometimes we talk about lay pastors or whatever. But, God, you know, people in the church still see that difference, but we're, we're at war against that distinction as much as possible. So, in your mind, are they the same? Yes. Uh, although I think that there's a, a certain, you know, functional role, kind of a first among equals that can be given to a senior pastor. But in my mind, when I sit around that table with the other elders, I, I don't have more of a voice than they do, though they may give me a, a certain position of honor to lead. Sort of like Peter was, you know, kind of the first among equals with the apostles. But, uh, yeah. Thanks for being here. I'll turn it over now to... It's, uh, it's a joy to be with you this afternoon and enjoy this conversation together. Uh, not all times are nice. Uh, last November, it was supposed to be a nice time. It's a cool fall afternoon. The families are gathered. The, the cameras are out. All the parents are in attendance. The young NFL hopefuls are suited up. And the game is going on. It's the annual Turkey Bowl in Eastman, Georgia. It's just outside of Macon, Georgia. And these parents are watching their children play the annual turkey bowl. So at the very end, one of the boys comes over to one of his three coaches and says, Coach, I am exhausted. Can I just, can I get out now? Spoken like a true football coach, he tells him to suck it up, get back in the game. The game's almost over, stay with it. To the surprise, though, is the response of another coach of the same team. He begins to argue with this coach and begins to say, I can't believe you. This is just like you. I'm sick and tired of you. These two coaches proceed to get in their own argument together, which proceeds to develop into a fist fight, which then goes so far as one of the other coaches pulls out a knife and stabs the other coach in the side two times. This really happens. Crazy. What was supposed to be like a great time, these families, a wonderful fall afternoon in Eastman, Georgia, coaches stabbing coaches. And in case you missed it, they're on the same team. The very situation I've described, as tragic as it is and unbelievable as it is, is even more tragic when similar scenes unfold before Christians' eyes as they watch their leaders turn on each other and stab one another. It might not be with a knife, but with the power of the tongue, it shows it can do some serious damage. 
So during this session, we're going to address the problem that can manifest itself in any one of our churches. No matter how long we've been there, no matter how old the church is. The title of this seminar is A Major League Team Building Unity Among the Elders. We're going to learn this afternoon in the short time we have together, because we want to allow some time for a panel discussion with a few of us to kind of drill in on some specifics. We're going to learn in our time together three key ingredients to building unity among the elders. Three key ingredients to building unity among the elders in our churches. First of all, let it be said, it's perhaps obvious, but needs to be said. We need to be convinced of the priority of unified leadership. We need to be convinced of this. How are we convinced of this? Well, first of all, we're compelled by Scripture. I trust you already are. It's probably why you're even here. You're convinced this is a priority. Let's just consider this, though, briefly together. Well-known and appropriately well-known passage. Jesus says himself in his own prayer, the Son of God, to God the Father, when he says in John 17, verse 22, The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I and them, and you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me. And love them even as you've loved me. Here in this text we see the gold standard for Christian unity is nothing less than the Trinity itself. Certainly a high calling, but a very confident calling in light of the fact that Jesus is praying this himself for us. Unity within our churches and modeled by our leadership is not just a way of leading church. It is an imperative that God has for his people in assembly. We need to realize sort of the alternatives here. Disunity as an alternative, is not a good one. It is a spiritual rot that affects Christian community. And not only weakens the integrity of the community, it also invites other parasites into the substance to set up shop and undermine the validity and substantial ministry of the local church. I'll take it from me. Listen to the Apostle Paul. Amongst the many maladies of a sick church like 1 Corinthians, one ranking at the top of the list is that of disunity. Except they think they can justify this disunity by appealing to their leaders to legitimize them in this respect. 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 12, Paul says that they're citing Paul, others are citing Apollos, others are citing Cephas, others are trying to trump all that, just claim Jesus. I'd pick that one too if I was them. Paul counters all of this with the reminder that each of those leaders, including himself, are building on the same foundation. And already we begin to see what Paul is pointing at here. Leaders should have unity in the very foundation that all their ministry is built upon. The gospel of Jesus Christ. It starts there. It starts there. We should be alert. And realize that disunity within church leadership invites a ranking system. I mean, let's be honest. Let's be practical about this. When you have disunity within leadership, you certainly recognize that there is, accordingly, with this disunity, a ranking system. A first place, a last place, a winner, and a loser. And truthfully, as leaders, disunity is not good by principle, but ranking is good if you're high in the polls. If you're favored by many. If you're loved by quite a few, this might feed your flesh, but it will poison your body. This disunity in Corinthian context is nothing unique 
or found only in the church in Corinth, since the early days of the church as testified in Acts 6, when unity is, excuse me, when disunity is ethnically based. Disunity amongst the peoples where collective and progressive ungodliness ends up. Just give it time, it'll come. Why? Because sin is by very nature anti-relationship. Whether it be with God or with the people that he's created us to be with, we will move apart, not together. It's of paramount importance that the leadership of a local church is aware of this constant temptation laying below the surface of many of our churches, and therefore the leadership is continually responding to this with a godly counterexample. I by no means am saying John 17 is a proof text for leadership unity. No, it's a prayer for the unity in the church, but where should the people in the church look to to see this emulated before their very watching eyes? They're leaders. Their leaders should clearly and consistently demonstrate this. Something that's interesting to me to observe is how common the writers of the New Testament speak in the plural. Now, apart from the comments related to the use of the epistolary plural and Paul's use of that occasionally, it is still interesting nevertheless to realize how often when the writers spoke, they spoke as to representing not only themselves but others with them. And not just as a part of a, as an apostolic entourage, but as a shared desire for these people, as a shared love for them, as a shared passion for them. And whether or not you had one of them or the other one, you would have the same thing from them because of the confidence of what it was that they offered and what it was they desired to see in their lives. Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 4, dealing with a specific issue, I treat Yudia and I treat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Romans chapter 12, verse 16 and 18, he's saying, generally speaking, live in harmony with one another. Never be wise in your own sight. If it's possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. You see, friends, this is why it's so important that elders are to be, as the scripture says, and we just read in the last session, sober-minded, self-controlled, not violent but gentle, and not quarrelsome. Why? Because as elders, we're drawn into these body-life situations all the time. As parents separating siblings, so elders oftentimes stepping into member dynamics, and all the more should those elders themselves model the very thing they're going to commend to their people. How to forgive one another. How love covers a multitude of sins. And how you think the best. How you do not keep it a record of wrongs. How you love them. The manner in which the gospel has taught you. We're not only convinced by scripture, we're also confident in prayer. We need to demonstrate our dependence on God by constantly going to him in prayer. Leadership's unity isn't just an initiative that can be delegated to a committee. There are ideas you might have for your churches. There are things you might want to inquire in and ask more about. But you don't sub this baby out. No, no, this is for you. If you're a leader in your local church, if you serve in that capacity, serve on staff as a pastor, volunteer as a, as a lay elder in that sense, a non-staff pastor, in that regards, all of you are called to this. When you have people boycotting your sermons, staging walkouts, when you have people leaving your body by more than you can count, when you have people calling for your resignation at members' meeting, when your leaders have childhood friends saying they refuse to worship with them anymore, you realize how fragile things are. This is not some sort of cheap piece. This is not like all its more matching shirts. That'll convince the church we're together. No, this is you 
being on your knees, laboring, saying, God, if, if you don't keep this together, if you don't hold, help us to hold the line as leaders, we will fall. Too many stories to tell, divided churches, split churches. It started with the leadership. You, you're not just convinced principally by Scripture. You're compelled personally in prayer saying, God, I'm depending on you for this. And you practice this with your leaders. You pray with other leaders for the church. You let them share their passions, what they love to see God do. And you also pray with other leaders for each other. Yes, you need to pray for the lady in surgery. Yes, you need to pray for the new Christian who needs to be discipled. Yes, you need to pray for the financial decision you need to make with the budget. But, but how can you pray for each other? Our first key ingredient to building unity is to be convinced of the priority of it in your church. Secondly, strategize for implementation. Strategize for implementation. I'm always taken back by how many people have all kinds of desires to accomplish all kinds of things but have no plan to accomplish it. Right? The guy who's looking forward to losing some weight while well, he sits on the couch with a bag of Cheetos. The person who'd love to know more theology while they watch another sitcom. The husband who acknowledges he should be more romantic as he works a few more hours next week. Now, people don't necessarily have a hard time acknowledging what they should do. But actually coming up with a plan, even if it's not written down, but actually sort of thinking out a plan for implementation is incredibly important in any area of resolution, particularly this important one for us. In many churches, we need to think through carefully how to develop and create a culture by which this unity is not just on cruise control, but it's continually being fostered and developed, nurtured and matured, and it's producing a greater and healthier church. Not just closer friendships within the elders, but surely that should be a byproduct of it. So how do we strategize? Well, I'll give you a couple ideas. Number one, identify opportunities for growth. Identify opportunities for growth. I think elders should continually work together to mature as a group of elders. You know, sometimes, depending on the church dynamic you're in, you might feel like becoming an elder was like, boy, that was a major deal. But once you're in, you're in. It's like a bound and set group. You, you went through the gauntlet, you've arrived, and you just kind of like cruise. As long as you get too heretical on us, or heretical at all, as long as you have a fairly good attendance at the meetings... As long as you're generally helping people, if nothing else, just in the lobby on a Sunday morning, you're good. Friends, that shouldn't be the case. We should be continually working to mature as elders. Whether it's in biblical counseling, systematic theology, biblical theology, hermeneutics, prayer, we want to keep developing and growing as leaders. Not only will this generally benefit the entire congregation, because as their leaders are growing, so the congregation will benefit as well and grow accordingly, it will also continually introduce the opportunity for humility that not everybody in the room knows everything. It fosters humility because it recognizes you're going to have guys that are just stronger in some areas than they are in others. Once these are identified, you can encourage such people by letting them know how others are learning from them and their observations they're making, the contributions they're offering, and their areas of expertise or pronounced competency that other elders are just not. It's not just due to age. It's due to insight. In our example, in the situation I'm at, 
It's a church revitalization context, in case you've not realized that already. Been there in six and a half years. Uh, the, the elders are sweet, godly men. We have a separate meeting every month where we will have read and prepared and then come together to discuss a particular subject uh, that we want to think through. We're kind of on a three-year rotation. One year it's systematic theology and emphasis. Next year it's biblical theology and emphasis. Next year it's practical theology and emphasis. And we just sort of rotate this cycle. And that's the purpose of that meeting. We'll discuss that for an hour and a half, and then we'll pray for our people in that time for another 30 more minutes or so. And it affords us the opportunity to continue to be growing as a group, and that's something that we're unified around. This progressive sanctification is we want to steward what's been entrusted to us to lead the people that have been given to us by the Lord. They are, after all, according to 1 Peter 5, his flock. I find that when your elders are learning together, we'll give them something else to share in common and enjoy. And this unity will bleed into other times with men. Another opportunity, another idea for strategizing for implementation is to diversify times for relationships. Diversify times for relationships. Now, let's be honest. I understand. Busy, busy, busy lives, right? We have a guy who is fully engaged in his working responsibility and his vocation. If he happens to have children still at home, he feels conscientiously, rightly so, responsible for spending time with those children. He'd love his wife to commend him publicly, not just so he can look good, but because out of the true demonstration of his love for her, he wants time with her. He is, after all, a shepherd and an elder and responsibility. He needs to have shepherding opportunities with the people, and whether it's in his hospitality, whether it's in his early morning uh, breakfast, whether it's in his midday lunches, he should be with the flock. Shepherds should smell like sheep. That's what should be happening. You put all that together on a flow chart, and you're like, how are we going to get together at all? I know some pastors who have a hard time getting the elders together once every couple of months. Now, if that's a situation you're in, I'm going to say that's not a good situation to be in long term. And I don't think there's any biblical case to make for any particular level of frequency, but I do think you would do well to build upon what you already have to begin to diversify additional times for these relationships between the leaders. I mean, if indeed you do have an elders meeting and it meets once a month, depending on the length of that meeting, that's 12 times a year you're getting together. Perhaps that's sufficient at its minimal level of opportunity for you, but there are other opportunities. Perhaps you can come before a members meeting to pray together. Just an opportunity where you push the furniture away, you get on your knees and just pray over what's about to take place. Perhaps it's an annual Christmas party together with the spouses where you get to eat each other's, or your wives at least, chocolate chip cookies. Perhaps it's an annual retreat where you get away together and you get a chance to extend the time in prayer and in planning as you really think through how do we lead, how do we give oversight to these people. Continually the dynamics are changing. The point is, in all of these ideas and opportunities, you're diversifying opportunities for relationships. And like any other relational environment you're in, the more of them you're in and the more varied they are, the closer those bonds have become. In fact, I'll bet that a number of you, if this is not already the case, if this does become the case in the situation you're in, one of the side effects will be the wives will start wanting the same thing for themselves. Because encouragingly, they'll see this example in their own husbands. And how they're benefiting from it and how they love their brothers. 
The key feature to these additional times is that it shakes up the routine and it helps facilitate relationships. Inevitably, this leads guys to knowing each other better and having some good personal conversations. One thing I did for a number of years, we don't currently do it right now, is that I would have meetings at my house, and a meeting I referenced before. I would actually have them at my house, and I would do that starting at 6 o'clock in the morning for breakfast for an hour, and then we'd begin our meeting at 7 o'clock as planned. But they wouldn't come at 7, they'd show up at 6. And just sharing that time together, and there's something incredibly relaxing, enjoyable, and personal when you're talking in someone's living room than a cold church chair. Trust me, church's chairs are cold at 6 a.m. in Indianapolis in the winter. And that opportunity has certainly facilitated more relationships. I believe that the frequency of exposure to one another can be one of your greatest assets. The more they're together in these contexts, the more they'll know each other, love each other, trust each other, and support each other. Another idea for how you can strategize for implementation is to appreciate and leverage your diversity. Appreciate and leverage your diversity. I don't know how many of you are familiar with adventure racing. Show of hands. Adventure racing. Okay, you guys need to get out more. Adventure racing is a, uh, an endurance sport. Okay, go back to my survey. A couple of you are familiar with it. How many of you have actually done adventure racing? Okay, a few studs in the room. A few studs. So the rest of you don't know, after today, you can all raise your hand when you're asked this question, what is adventure racing? Adventure racing is a multidisciplinary team sport. And it can range in distance and in length from a couple of hours to a week or longer, if you're like super hardcore. And involves anything depending on the time of year and the location, from kayaking to mountain biking to orienteering to rappelling. I've had the opportunity to do a number of these events, and I love them. But then again, people think I'm weird for other reasons, including that. So that probably would be a problem, I suppose. But what's interesting about adventure racing is you don't compete in these disciplines, these events, by yourself. You do it as a team. Those of you who have done this, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And so you have to choose your team wisely. Why? Because at any given time during the race, if one of your teammates becomes sick, becomes injured, or just has a total morale crusher and quits, your team is automatically disqualified. That's right. The two of you can be stallions. But the third one is a lame duck, you're out. And even if that's not the case or they want to quit, it even comes back to the very disciplines themselves. The disciplines, because inevitably somebody's going to be a faster runner in your team. Inevitably somebody's going to be a better biker in your team. But here's the key. You're only as fast as your slowest member because you cannot cross the finish line apart from each other. You have to race and finish together. Well, this is just like elder teams. Some bring to the table pronounced capabilities in areas that others do not. Some are more analytical in decision-making. Others are more zealous for evangelism. Still others are more compassionately inclined to the sheep. You can see that there are areas in everybody, perhaps, of some area of uh, inadequacy or weakness. I'm not talking character. I'm not talking kind of base on competency of able to handle the word. Able to refute false doctrine. I, I assume that based upon the teaching of scripture. But let's be honest. Not everybody has the same level of teaching gift amongst your elders. Everybody is, has the same sort of thinking capacity, analytical or shepherding inclination as others on your team do. This looks like an opportunity for disunity, but I say it's quite the opposite. 
Elder teams should be unified in theology and philosophy of ministry, but there can be great diversity in personalities, gifts, abilities, ideas. Let's be honest, though. This is going to tempt you towards frustration at times. It comes with making a decision, and there's just some guys who are just like, it is so obvious. Like, we have to do this for another 30 minutes? And you're going to want to just say, well, can't just get with the program? Oh, dear brother, do not do that if you're thinking that way. Because I can assure you, in most situations, not in every situation, this brother is a gift, and you have yet to identify at that moment why this is a helpful exercise for all of you, not just for him. But when you appreciate and leverage your diversity, you don't see it as a liability, you begin to see it as a strength. Facilitate discussions amongst your leaders. We often will do this. And sometimes, perhaps if you get together, you think, well, it's one person presenting, it's everybody else listening. If you do that, that's a, you're weakening the plurality dynamic. But to facilitate discussions, let's be honest, some guys are over-talkers. Some guys are under-talkers. Both of those groups need to be helped. The over-talker needs to be politely affirmed and passed over. The under-talker needs to be uh, boldly encouraged and drawn out for contribution. And given him the opportunity in his conviction and his opportunity to communicate what it is he's capable to contribute to the group. The entire time, of course, we're diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, but we're wanting to leverage who God has brought together to be leaders in our local church. Again, let me just remind you, leadership should be in many ways a small case study for the rest of the congregation to observe and to learn from. Appreciating the gifting and contributions of others, though, requires something fundamental to every leader if they're going to be a fruitful, Christ-honoring leader. And that's humility. Humility. I love how Richard Baxter says it. He says, some ministers think they are always right even in the details, and criticize anyone who disagrees with them. They reject the doctrine of papal infallibility, but they seem ambitious to be little popes themselves. They expect everyone to agree with them as if they were inerrant. This is one of the reasons why, gentlemen, we want to strengthen that plurality muscle in our leadership context. It will help kill this temptation towards pride and self-sufficiency. Third and finally, key ingredient to building unity among the elders, model it yourself. Model it yourself. How do you model it? Quite commonly and quite helpfully, it's your ability to defer. It's your ability to defer. Deferral is a gift to you. You should use it. How? How would you defer? Well, you would actually think, according to what we just read a minute ago from Baxter, that somebody actually might actually have something meaningful to contribute and they actually might be more valuable in what they're recommending than what you're thinking. And if you could just sort of pause in that moment and just think, what if actually this is the better course of action? I mean, after all, we're not being asked to redefine the Trinity here. We're not being asked to somehow dis, you know, disavow ourselves of any expositional instinct from this point forward. No one's asking us to somehow become hyper-pragmatic in all of our methodological instincts. No, instead, they're just sort of recommending a different timeline of how we'd pursue this person in church discipline. I might disagree, but I'm certainly glad to defer. 
doesn't mean you're silent. It certainly means you contribute. That means you practice functional humility in the context of community. What that means is that you value the place of collective wisdom, not just individual opinion. But here's when it gets tough. A decision is made and it goes public. How do you communicate it? Do you say, the elders have decided, as this abstract, distant party of people that you have no relationship to, or we as elders have decided, of which you are a part of and you gladly identify with? And will you still make that kind of distinction and and nuanced representation when you will personally receive all the flack from it? There was a situation in our church where our elders, as a group, made a decision to end sports ministry so as to reset it. And we were going to end it. I recommended that we would end it over the period of three years of this transitional opportunity. More backstory, time does not permit. And some of my elders took the opinion, don't cut the tail off a dog an inch at a time, you just cut the tail off. And I wanted to say, this is not a dog's tail we're pasturing here. And they made that decision. And it was a large conversation, and uh, and you know how that works if any one of you are senior pastors. Uh, you know, next thing you know, I'm anti-kids. I hate all children, and I want none of them to come to faith in Christ, and uh, I don't even like sports. And you need to say, this is what we've decided. This is what we've decided. And not like in your own heart, sort of justifying, yeah, but I'm with them. Like, like, no, we decide this. This is good for us. I trust the Lord with this. Trust will bring good from this. You need to pace your expectations when you model this yourself. Sometimes the problem is that it's hard to model it because you want to move faster than slower. You have to learn to love unity in the church more than your vision and ideas for the future. If you're a young pastor or elder, this can be very hard for you because your default will be to move faster than you should. The world needs saving. People need to be discipled. Let's get on it. And again, this requires humility and patience. Requires their theology to function here, to be reminded that God is at work. So, we're convinced of the priority of this. We strategize for implementation and we model it ourselves. During medieval times, enemy forces would attack formidable castles in a number of ways. These sieges could last for months. While the attacking armies would use uh, weapons like battering rams, catapults, other devices, the most successful way they found was actually something that could not be seen. They would send in miners in the dark of night and to identify where there's weaknesses in the wall, preferably in the corner where the walls came together. And outside the sight of anybody, they'd begin to dig and dig and dig. And they would finally unearth enough of the foundation, and then they would backfill it with dry wood and brush. And everyone would exit, and the last miner would set that fuel on fire. And the strategy was simple. The fire will cause that ground to collapse. That ground collapses, the wall will collapse. And if you breach the wall, you've won the castle. This is what it's like in our churches for many of us. You breach the elders, you win the church. Constituency leadership is a failed and ungodly way to lead, but a way in which many of our people continually tempt leaders to lead. Win one elder, you can win the church. 
May God keep that from happening. And may we be a consistent example in Christ-like humility of this as being Christ's church, of which we as under-shepherds, in unity together, intend to lovingly shepherd and lead. At this time, I'm going to ask Ryan and Greg to come up. Ryan Townsend is Executive Director of Nine Marks Ministries. Greg Gilbert, Senior Pastor, 3rd Avenue Baptist Church in Louisville, Kentucky. It's our desire now to be helpful to you to kind of think through some things together. If we had more time, we'd open up to you. We don't. So instead, what we're going to do is just kind of think through some stuff together. Ryan? Brothers, two, uh, several questions here for both of you. I want to start with this one. Do you require unanimity on elder decisions in your elders meeting? And if so, on what specific decisions require unanimity? Uh, the only thing that we require any kind of formal unanimity on is is uh, the nomination of other elders. Uh, now we we proceed a lot of times with with a kind of informal unanimity, um, uh, but on most questions the only rule is is a majority. There are eight of us right now, so it would require five votes. But um, when we're nominating new elders, we require unanimity mainly because we need we need all eight of us. If we were going to nominate somebody else, we need all eight of us to recognize that other guy as as being gifted to be an elder, or else you're just setting up the whole thing for disunity. Yeah, so the church I'm at now, we, it's the only area we actually require unanimity on, uh, is that. Because we think that actually is the one area that if we're not, that will cause great temptation towards disunity amongst the leadership in due time. Everything else, we want open, honest discussion and a happy... So when I say defer, we're not. that's not a code word for we unanimously agree. That just means that I lose that... Vote amongst the elders, if you will. Capitol Hill started with five elders, and then it was pretty easy to have unanimity on decisions. We now have 28 elders, and uh, and it's not as easy to get unanimity on any decision. But the one essential element that has stayed constant uh, since 1998, since when we implemented elders, has been this decision to have unanimity on recognizing new elders. And all 28 elders had to recently affirm those others will be present. And I think it, it, that is essential to guarding unity because there's two kinds of uh, important questions, important clear and important unclear. And elders live in the realm of important unclear decisions. So you need deep wells of trust for the ambiguity that exists in basically the world you live in as an elder. So uh, just want to make that point practically, which then leads to my second question for you two. Uh, uh, you, you were affirming a plurality of elders, and I agree with you. I mean, in, 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 the, in, the, in my existential experience, I, one of the best ways I've seen the kindness and the love of God is in a plurality, um, both guarding against my own pride, but also co- uh, complimenting my weaknesses and, and bringing out the, the gifts that I can bring and vice versa. What then is the role of the senior pastor practically? How does the senior pastor either help or hurt unity among elders. And if you want, you can think through division of labor as well. It's not just the senior pastor, but the pastor of so-and-so. Division of labor, senior pastor, and the role of unity practically. What do you think? Well, I think that's a, a contemporary you know, nomenclature to represent. Um, I mean, unless you're going to come at it from an exegetical standpoint of Ephesians 4, verse 11, accepting that, that it's a delegated responsibility that typically has primary teaching pulpit responsibilities and staff oversight. Uh, it does not mean that that I have a louder vote amongst the elders. Um, I do think that they will, because my voice is so often heard in the church due to their teaching ministry, 
I purposely try to suppress my voice when I'm in a meeting contact with elders. So I will not talk first. I will try to talk last if I need to talk at all because I want to strengthen that plurality exercise um, in that sense. As far as the other staff elders, we have lay elders. There's a total of ten elders. Four of us are employed by the church. Six of us are not. Um, of the other three elders who are employed by the church, uh, they just have other pastoral responsibilities. It includes teaching due to the fact that they're given the full-time opportunity to do that, but it doesn't have the same oversight responsibility or the same frequency of the preaching that I would in that sense. Yeah, at our church, it's a, it's a fairly natural thing, I think, for uh, me as, as the senior pastor to, to lead and uh, be the point guy in trying to bring unity of, of mind among the elders. And that's for a couple of reasons. Number one, because I'm hired by the church as an elder to spend 40, 50 hours of, of, uh, of my life every week thinking about it. it. It just is going to be the case that every other week when my elders meet together, I am probably going to come with uh, more information about the life of the church and just more formed thoughts than any of those guys who are given those same 40 or 50 hours a week to uh, to another job. So a lot of times what I find myself doing in an elders meeting is, is listening to the other guys as they, as they kick an issue around. And then, uh, in a, I think a fairly unique way, sort of like, uh, sort of like the captain of the ship, maybe trying to find a way through those varying opinions in order to bring the thing to, uh, to some sort of a consensus so we can move forward. Um, you need somebody doing that because, because otherwise very easily, with guys bringing their opinions uh, about a certain issue, you can wind up in a stalemate. And it's really important to have somebody whose job it is, in fact, to say, okay, given this, given this, here I see a way forward so that we can have consensus and, and move on. And my only addition to that, affirming that, is that in our context, our chairman of elders would primarily play that role in the facilitation of the discussion and kind of helping move us from that stalemate position. Yeah, I personally hate the title senior pastor in one sense. You know, Jesus doesn't like titles for, for obvious reasons. But, you know, you look at every empire, every business, every organization, every church, leadership is essential and there needs to be, there needs to be a leader. And, uh, I ask this question because I think in one sense there does need to be a, a first among equals, a man who is leading the elders. But, uh, what I love about the Bible and what I love about biblical leadership is that authority is not given in a title. It's given, um, I think, in, in his role as the main preacher of God's word. So that, that authority, it's, it's the marine motto, always earned, never given. A godly man will earn his authority as the senior pastor through rightly preaching and teaching the word and then modeling it, as you said, in the way that he defers. Um, and if he does that well, I think that will give him a real authority that allows him to be the captain and lead lead but it will do it in a, in a biblical way that recognizes his authority is actually checked equally among all the elders. His vote, you know, one vote among all of our elders. I know all of our elder boards, the senior pastor does not have any more formal votes. Um, one thing I've appreciated about our senior pastor, he has, we use that title at Capitol Hill. Um, and it's clear that he is the senior pastor when he is preaching and teaching on Sunday mornings. But often people, visitors have come to the elders meeting and they've never seen uh, Mark before. That Mark Devers, our senior pastor, and they're surprised uh, when they meet him because he's often the one who speaks le- uh, le- uh, least in the meeting. And I think there's, there's, a, there's a good practice in that as well, uh, of kind of what you're saying, deferring to the parallel. It helps a meekness and strength in that, in that humility. Uh, last, uh, we got a few more minutes here. One, one, one tension that we exist with at Capitol Hill Baptist Church is just, uh, we have unanimity. We have a very united elder board by God's grace. 
But there is, just by the nature of roles, a, a tension between staff and non-staff elders. So, you know, those who are fully employed as uh, vocational ministers, uh, elders, pastors, and those who are uh, lay leaders. Do you all experience that tension in your church? Um, how does it express itself? And as the two senior pastors, how do you work against that? Because that is that tension between staff and non-staff elders could be a source of disunity. So practically, think about that with me, about and encourage the guys in ways that you, they can lead. Yo, I can think about it with you all day. I'm not sure that I have any solutions to that problem. Maybe I can just put the maybe I can just put the problem a little more a little more sharply. The way the the way that comes out with with us, we have uh, we have eight elders total. We have two of us that are that are full time on staff, and then six others who are not. And uh, we tend to, as an elder board, flip back and forth between two extremes on this question. Either number one, uh, the staff elders will bring very completed ideas to the elders, uh, at which point we find out that actually the elders wanted to think about that more from kind of square one, or uh, if we go the other direction, we'll bring mere questions. What should we do about this? At which point, sometimes we're told that it's actually our job to think through that and bring more completed questions, more completed uh, conclusions. So, I don't know. I mean, we flip we flip back and forth on it, and if any of you have kind of solved that in any way, I would love to talk with you after this is over. And I'd love you to write an article on it for nine marks. <laughs> here come the conclusions right here. No, no, that was like a... Well, if I could make the problem even worse by representation, uh, yeah, I would obviously relate to this as a challenge. Uh, I think one of the things I try to do to try to feel like there's not this divide between the staff elders and lay elders is to continually keep the lay elders informed in any ways that I can, particularly in areas of their responsible oversight. So, for example, one of our elders being involved with our missions team as far as giving oversight to that, things I might know that he might not know, I'll just ask for lunch with him. Um, I don't want any of our elders to be surprised in any context. So it's kind of a constant means of communication. When it does come to decision-making context, if I do sense, depending on what the issue might be, that there's a real point of passion or concern, I might approach those elders ahead of time, not to be manipulative towards the process, but just because they might need a longer ramp to build up to, as opposed to have it fully formed in front of them. And then they feel like they have to do a huge counter-offer. I want to feel like they had a chance to think ahead of time about it, and then we can discuss it as a whole group. And yet, at the same time, the prudential aspect is elders don't want to be spending all night on a decision. They want to stuff kind of thought through ahead of time. And so if we are employed as elders, we want to kind of serve them in that respect. And so it is a bit of a moving target as far as how to best serve the rest of the elders in being prepared for the meetings to use that time well. I will, I will say that probably the best thing that I've come up with to try to, to, try to uh, thread that needle is to come in with a pretty well thought out thing, a pretty well thought out idea on paper uh, sometimes it's multiple pages, and just sort of throw it on the table and say, here's the question, here's a potential solution, uh, but but then make it very clear with my words that this decision is yours, and if you want to pick at the edges of this idea that I've thrown out there, that's great. If you want to throw the whole thing out and start over from scratch, that's great. One of you take it over and you bring the next memo. Um, but but I, you just have to bring, I've found, the best thing for me is to bring a kind of completed idea but then give it to the elders and be very hands-off about it and say it's it's yours to adopt or not. Three practical things that we've done at Capitol Hill Baptist Church as elders on this is we actually, and I was on a subcommittee that, that, that thought this through, but we actually had a subcommittee and then we took it to the whole elders where we, 
we said we believe that executive committees are unbiblical and kind of work against the unity of the whole elder board. So we will not break up the elder board for an executive committee. Um, but we do have subcommittees that can think through things like, I'm on one right now, youth, you know, youth ministry and, and women's ministry. Um, number two, uh, this has been really helpful. We just met the past few years. We broke out our elders meetings into two types, member care meetings and issues meetings. Member care, all we're doing is praying for and talk, praying for the congregation, literally by name, and talking through each member. Um, we'll, we'll email before we spend. That's all member care. That's the heart of what we think shepherding is. But then we also have, uh, and we alternate. We have an issues meeting where we'll talk about things as an elder board. We've done divorce and remarriage, artificial reproductive technology, um, counseling for suicide. Any elder can bring any issue to the chairman, and uh, you know, six times a year. We'll have these issues. And the, just that, having that elder board talk through these together, these important, unclear questions of practical shepherding really does, I think, build a unity as we care. We are out of time. I'm going to call Kenny back up to, to close us. Thank you, brothers. We'll be at the booth if you have any more questions. Thank you, friends, for listening to this Nine Marks audio message. We encourage you to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more audio messages and other free resources, we invite you to visit us online at www.ninemarks.org or call us toll-free at 1-888-543-1030. Nine Marks exists to equip church leaders with a biblical vision and practical resources for displaying God's glory to the nations through healthy churches.